Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 67 of the Mandolins and Beer Podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. Huge favor to ask, if you could take just a few seconds today, or when you have a moment, the next time you're on YouTube, if you could go to The Mandolins and Beer YouTube page and hit subscribe that would be much appreciated. Um, I've done a few of these live streams, and one of the things that comes up when I do them is not everybody's on Facebook. And when I did some research here, in order to do one on YouTube, you have to have a certain amount of subscribers. I believe it's a thousand. And I would love, I never talk about the YouTube page, but if you guys could head over there and just hit subscribe, that would open up some more possibilities for some live stream things coming up in the near future. So it's mandolins of beer. Just type that in. I think that should bring it up. Or if you go to mandolinsofbeer.com, I can have a link there as well. But please just go over there and subscribe. Just takes seconds and it's free. So there you go. Speaking of live streams, one of the biggest resources I used when I was getting ready for the live streams in Nashville and in Austin was Peghead Nation, who's the sponsor this week. You get 30 days for free if you go to their website and use mandolinbeer.com. I used that resource for some of the tunes, some of the dog tunes and the Reichman tune. The breakdowns of these videos, if you haven't used it yet, you got to go check it out. I mean, you can get the tabs. They've got the tabs for you out there. You can download. They got play along tracks. There's a ton of songs, but the ability to, to watch these instructors break the songs down and teach you them and the little intricate parts and tricks to, to play in them. It's invaluable. So try it for 30 days. You got Sharon Gilchrist, Joe Walsh, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Fibish, and Chad Manning to pick from. You can't go wrong. So go over to PegheadNation.com right now and get that first month for free. Also brought to you this week by Northfield Mandolins. Northfield Mandolins, let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com. Download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. Also brought to you this week by Ear Trumpet Labs, who hand-build microphones in Portland, Oregon. Their mics are beautifully designed, have great feedback rejection for live use, and the most natural tone you'll find for acoustic instruments. Check them out at eartrumpetlabs.com today. I really wish I would have bought one of those uh, blackout mics they had during Halloween. So nice. And I want to thank Ellis Mandolins. Ellis Mandolins, handcrafted mandolins designed and built in Austin, Texas. All right, everybody, let's get into the podcast with Christopher Henry. Thanks so much for listening. As always, hit subscribe wherever you're listening, and we'll talk to you all next week. Cheers, everybody. Now I'd like to welcome to the podcast, Mr. Christopher Henry. Christopher, how's it going, buddy? It is a good day here in Charlotte, North Carolina. Yes, sir. How about yourself? Doing good, man. It's a it's a beautiful day here in Charleston, South Carolina. The sun is shining. Yes. You know, it's uh it's it's I, that's cool. I didn't realize we were so close, just a few hours away. Yeah, yeah. I've been uh I was born in, in Florida and, and raised up in the Shenandoah Valley in Winchester and then spent a lot of time, about um, 10 or 13 years or so in, in Tennessee, uh, in and around 
Nashville, then moved back to Virginia for a couple years. And then uh, just, uh, I guess, the end of 2018, uh, moved down here to Charlotte and then got engaged to uh, my now wife, Brooke. Oh, congrats. And thank you very much. And, and uh, just really, really love uh, the Queen City here and, and being in Carolina. It's nice. But yeah, love love Charleston, too. I was just, uh, before we got rolling here, I was mentioning that my my folks, Red and Murphy Henry, some uh, may be familiar with their uh, work as bluegrass musicians and then into their instructional uh, video business. It was audio cassettes in the early 80s. Uh, Mom and dad were the first folks to to offer all by ear bluegrass instruction starting in the early 80s. And we can talk a little bit about that at some point. But they uh, they start, first started playing music in the Low Country Bluegrass Band, uh, I believe with George Del Porto that, down there around uh, Charleston. Yes, sir. Uh, Dr. George. In the, in the service at that point, but a lot of uh, great history and, and, and bluegrass uh, music and, and culture in Charleston. And yeah, lots great. of it. It's cool. Yeah. Not not lots of bluegrass instruments sales, though. Holy, I thought for sure when I moved from Michigan to here, you know, I lived near elderly instruments, and, and like an hour away from elderly instruments, so I had kind of like a place I could drive to, and I thought moving to Charleston, I'd be like, oh, man, this is going to be great. I'm going to be surrounded by mandolins, and not the case. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I know, right? That would be very different than than having the the kid in the candy store kind of experience going to elderly. Yeah, boy, I loved it, especially, you know, back in the... Uh, before everything really skyrocketed in price, you know, you could you could go and play some pretty cool stuff, but then suddenly some of that stuff started being behind the counter. <laughs> I feel you, man. I have actually never owned a mandolin um, just because you know price has been so prohibitive to to me as a uh, you know uh, bluegrass musician, not terribly or not really too good at all at the business side of it. Although I'm making some improvement on that, I've been lucky to to play uh, Randy Wood number 1281, which my dad got new in 1981. And my mom let me play a little harmony mandolin until I was about, you know, nine or 10 years old. And then Red let me play that, that Randy Wood. And I've been playing it for about 30 years. And certainly wow. my, my best friend uh, down on through the years and uh, actually was uh, the reason that I, uh, you know, a big part of the reason that I ended, I ended up meeting my wife because I, was going. I was living in in Winchester, where my folks still live. Red Murphy Henry there, and Dave McLaughlin lives there, and Lynn Morris and, and, and Marshall, great community there. Scott Brandon, Dalton Brill was the hub of the the community. He since passed. Banjo picker, Reno, Reno style banjo picker and barber, but he was the the galvanizing force behind a lot of the the community there, and had the barber shop where I learned to play. My mom and dad played there. Um, every Wednesday night for a number of years, and, and David McLaughlin played the guitar in their band until I was old enough to to play guitar myself. But I was going down to uh, Savannah to get my mandolin worked on, and stopped in uh, Charlotte for a night, and ended up meeting my wife. Whoa, that's crazy! That there, so yeah, it's really, really wild. So the the mandolin definitely a part of of uh, our, our destiny in a big way. That's amazing. You know, 30 years with that same instrument, too, it's got to be a bond. Like, even if you, even if there was, you know, another mandolin out there that you've played, it seems like it'd be pretty tough to uh, to take away something that you've, you know, like, I mean, you, you pick that mandolin up and nobody else is going to sound like you on that mandolin. There's some sort of, you know, energy in there over 30 years, so... Absolutely, there there is you know that that affinity 
with uh, with that can develop with with folks and their and their babies, their their instruments, and and so often the the instruments will inform the the picker's uh, sense of style. You know, having the the picker um, gravitate towards the tones and modalities of expression and 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 sound that suit the instrument the best. And you know, there I've played you know so many beautiful mandolins, but but no mandolin can do exactly what what this one does, and I do love it dearly. That's awesome. I love that, man. Well, we should get into how you started playing mandolin because you come from quite the musical rich mom and dad. Yes, I, I couldn't have done you know any better in terms of having uh, the best teachers uh, possible for me. Uh, early on, my mom is. Uh, you know, there's no better music teacher ever, and she's probably, uh, I, I would, I would say, certainly taught more people how to play the banjo than anyone ever. Um, and we're talking about a lot of the folks that that could not learn from tablature; they could not learn from written music. They're, these are people that love the music but didn't have a way in. And uh, in the late '70s, mom was teaching the conventional way with with tablature, and and she just kind of stopped that one time with one of her students and started teaching it and explaining it all in in phrase by phrase, bite sized pieces. And the student uh, started coming back, and it and it started to sound musical because the teaching was focused on the sound rather than the process of of you know learning something off of a piece of paper. You're always constantly focused on the sound and improving your ability to discern and to learn by ear. And, and my dad had had experience with, with this, this way of teaching with his uncle, um, who had taught him how to play bluegrass music. Uh, they were um, living in Jacksonville in the, um, the mid-late 60s. John Hedgecoth, who's a, an amazing uh, person and musician. He was a bluegrass boy uh, in 1975, filled in for uh, Bob Black. He was also in the Nashville Jug Band and... Uh, and played with Ed Dye and, and Billy Smith and, and those cats in the, in the Shinbone, a legendary band called the Shinbone Valley All-Stars. And he was also the, the foreman of the repair shop at, at Groons for a long time. Uh, but so John had started um, teaching Red how to play by ear in the, um, in the late 60s. And, and he would teach by ear and Red re- would record the lessons on his little portable reel-to-reel. I guess it was, I guess it was maybe an eighth of an inch machine, I'm not sure. Uh, but then when it was uh, an appropriate idea to, to think about uh, helping mom record her by ear lessons that way in the early 80s, they started doing that and offering them commercially. And they were the first folks to, to do that commercially in, in bluegrass music because generally, you know, it was like the Scruggs book and, and mom worked a lot with that. But then she started to be able to teach that stuff you know, by ear, which really takes a special person to be able to do that. Um, not everybody can... Um, teach by ear, you know, with, with good results, but she certainly can. And so they started doing that with, uh, um, audio series on banjo in the early eighties, about 82 or 83. And then they moved on to, um, uh, video, uh, VHS, um, tapes in the, I guess, late eighties and early nineties, and then on into, um, DVD and then now streaming, they have a full line of uh, instructional um, material for all the bluegrass instruments and and singing and and so she was just a wonderful uh, is a wonderful teacher. She's kind of phasing out of that and doing more writing these days. But um, but she taught me my my first two finger chords when I was about, when I was four years old. I remember the lesson very well. I had the little triangle uh, you know stickers underneath the, <laughs> in different colors. I was playing the little 
harmony mandolin and and so i i was i was you know banging on that for you know several years and then uh and then, yeah, my, my father, uh, you know, one of the, the most amazing um, musicians of all time also. And, and mom, she's, uh, she's one of the three women uh, in the Masters of the Five String Banjo book, along with Lynn Morris. That's uh, awesome. Allison Brown. And, you know, just a few years ago, got the Lifetime Achievement Award from IBMA for her, you know, efforts with uh, instruction and writing. Uh, but but also an amazing, uh, super progressive feminist um, songwriter uh, in the late '70s and early '80s in the Southeast. You know, to the point that, like the, you know, a lot of the the more conservative audiences in, at the festivals, they didn't really know what to to make of her because she was <laughs> so different. You know, singing, you know, I ain't domesticated yet, and uh, you know, just really pouring it on with the with the. Um, uh, progressive feminist uh philosophy and uh and that was just that there there was literally no one else who was doing that and, and and no one else has really even gotten to that level of of progressive feminist uh songwriting that that, that i know of really i think that um you know folks like you know melody walker are probably uh going in that direction strongly but uh yeah i think Della well, may a bit too they seem to okay, uh, very good. Yeah. seem to be also leading the charge Excellent. And so, you know, this is this, um, you know, like 30, 40 years after mom <laughs> right. kind of kicked it off. And but, you know, then they, they transitioned into into the, the teaching tapes. And so a lot of people, they just never, although they were the, the top bluegrass band in, in Florida, um, along with um, Chubby Anthony and, and Big Timber, uh, but they were the, the first band out of Florida to, to get up the East Coast and out to Winfield and into, into Canada, and they blazed a lot of trails for, uh, for Chubby Anthony, for instance. And Other Florida bluegrass artists. So, yeah, we. So um, one of our our good family friends was David McLaughlin. Oh and, yeah, uh, and mom and dad were friends with David and the Johnson Mountain Boys from playing a lot of shows together. And they were all kind of similarly wired and Stanley Brothers freaks and of course Red <laughs> David, um, you know Monroe freaks, and they really connected. Uh, David said, "Why don't you come up? Because their mom and dad were looking for an, a new place. Because they, they found that uh, that w when they went up north, you know, into Pennsylvania, you know, that was where the more uh, liberal, college-educated audiences were, and these were the the audiences that just ate everything up and would buy out all of their albums to the point where they had to like, you know, you know, get somebody to break into the house in, in Hawthorne, Florida, to like, you know, <laughs> get more send up to Pennsylvania so they could satisfy the, the you know the." 
what what the, the audiences wanted up there. So David said, "Hey, come check out uh, you know Winchester, Virginia," and, and so they they ended up there at, um, at Dalton Brill's uh, barbershop and musician shop. And Mom, you know, one of the auspicious signs was that Dalton had some old national. Uh, finger picks that he, that he was selling. And so that was one, and he was a Reno style picker and, and just a social genius. And, uh, it took me a long time to kind of really understand his, his, his magic on the level because I was used to more, uh, Scotch, Irish, English culture and the Shenandoah Valley was uh, predominantly settled by German, uh, folks, uh, immigrants. And so, because it looks a lot like, you know, I guess, um, you know, Germany. And, uh, and so it's different, different culture, different kind of humor. And it took me a long time to, to kind of catch on to that, but you know, I, was, <laughs> I, I did, you know, eventually to be able to appreciate Dalton and for the folks that, that know about him, he was good buddies with Don Reno, who was also a barber in the Shenandoah Valley. style and which was very different than than scrug style so it took me a while to warm up to that too uh but just back to your original uh you know question about 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 teachers um you know mom mom's an amazing teacher red is an amazing teacher uh david is an amazing teacher and uh and i couldn't have, have done any better in terms of uh, what I actually was interested in, I've never heard in, in any music any better or more exciting that made me want to dance more and just like feel emotions than than the the Red Murphy and Company band and you know and the early Johnson Mountain Boys and I, I remember hearing I found a hiding place when I was like you know ten years old I was like I like that I yeah. like, I fast you know playing you know like up, upwards of you know one eighty one ninety two hundred beats beats per minute clean <laughs> with, with precision. And, you know, just hearing my dad's recording of, of Rawhide, hearing my mom pick the banjo, you know, and, and they're both, you know, amazing composers. two of the best composers of all time for sure a lot of red's mandolin work um is is you know is is totally uneclipsed and uh you know only folks like you know you know sam bush and uh and grisman to to an extent were the were were, were contemporaries and in terms of uh prolific nature of of the compositions a lot of, a lot of folks have not heard a lot of uh, red's music just because you know they got into teaching but uh he he uh re-released a lot of the old uh, recordings that were on record albums on, onto uh, a couple of CDs. One's called Bluegrass Mandolin and Other Trouble. And all that's on, on YouTube and, and tunes like, you know, Red Zeppelin. Yeah, that's a great tune, Red Zeppelin.
which you covered on your on your um, Monroe approved album too. Yes, sir. That is probably my favorite instrumental of all time. and also um, wanting to learn the, the high break on rawhide were, were probably the two most significant motivating uh, recordings that, that I gravitated towards that made me want to, uh, to learn how to play the mandolin for sure. How did you um, pick mandolin over banjo with, you know, having, having two, um, you know, super incredible players? How do you decide? A very good question. I think that... Um, Perhaps because I had already had uh, experience with the with the mandolin at uh, when I was really young, my mom showed me those chords, and then that kind of uh, marinated for you know five or six years, and then I, I played a little bit of you know uh, ukulele, and uh, so when I was you know ten years old or so, I'd already had a lot of experience with uh, with the mandolin, or at least some experience that had uh, marinated for a while, and then also my sister, she was gravitating towards um, the banjo and putting more more time in there but also it might have just been easy been easier maybe maybe mm-hmm. the mandolin just seemed easier for me and so i like that yeah <laughs> that's great and so now when did you start playing um gigs did you start playing with like a family band or at that point had they been like you said focusing on the recordings and you went out and kind of found other groups to play with because i know eventually you end up playing with like peter rowan and doing your own stuff but what did playing out and gigging look like for you like when you started doing it yeah, first time on stage was uh, three years old at a, at a, at a festival. <laughs> oh my gosh! Otters. And and I remember it very well. And like you know, I sat you know as patiently as I could at the back of the stage. You know, uh, while mom and dad were, were doing their set, and then like mom would come back and and she would like put her banjo down and get the guitar. I'd be like, "Is it time yet?" And she'd be like, "No, Christopher, just just wait." And so it was at the end, and eventually I, I came out and. Uh, uh, I can't remember what song was was off off the top of my head. Uh, pour me another cup of coffee, sweet daddy, and I'll be trucking down the line. You know I like the way you're making coffee, daddy. You can pour me out a cup at any time. Well, you're a dear old daddy, and I like to be your mama, but I'm just not the type to settle down. I can't stand the thought of putting biscuits in the oven and living in the same old town. That's one of my mom's songs. <laughs> nice. Um, and I remember my dad pulled his mandolin mic down so I could sing. And I had my ukulele, I believe, and I was strumming it. I can't remember if I was strumming it left hand or right hand. I might have. I was just. I think I was probably strumming it right hand. I would. I would. I would switch it a, a little bit before I really knew what was going on. And I pulled the mandolin mic down for me, and I was just so happy. And I felt like you know, I, I you know, I, I was doing okay. And then uh, I remember my dad. You know, he he reminds me sometimes that uh, at the end of that night, uh, he said that that um, that I, I told him when I sang loud, the audience clapped or something like that <laughs> and and so I, I remember that connection you know with with the audience and there was actually a you know an excellent photographer in the in the in you know, up, up towards the stage and there's a good good picture of it i remember it you know uh very well and so that was that was the first time on stage and so you know when i was uh you know just you know getting into you know growing up there in the on the mountain in 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 virginia i already had that kind of formative experience in in my mind so it was it was approachable and 
um, and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, and then mom and dad started playing in, at Dalton's basement in, in Winchester, Virginia, there every Wednesday night. And, uh, and so I would kind of, you know, chop the mandolin in the back as I was, or, or like, you know, I was mostly chopping mandolin, I think, and maybe playing a little bit of, uh, you know, understudy guitar, um, you know, while David was, was playing, David McLaughlin was playing guitar and, and my, my folks band, my dad would play the mandolin, my mom would play the banjo, Karen Spence, an, an excellent, uh, um, Shenandoah Valley musician, a generational, second generation, uh, uh, was playing the bass at that time. My sister eventually took over the bass there, but we were able to to cut our teeth in Dalton's basement there in a very supportive environment. Of course, you know, kids, you know, have such a, an amazing uh, advantage in a way because they can just get up there and they can just kind of, you know, go at it and, and everybody's going to love it. <laughs> you know, right. No matter if you know, you know, good or, or, you know, or if it's, you know, okay, you're still going to get a lot of support. And so, uh, you know, you can kind of do no wrong as a, as a child on stage. And so that was a really an, an ultimate situation for me in terms of getting the encouragement and, and feeling the love and all that kind of stuff, which can be a complicated thing, especially, you know, when you get older and it's like, oh, they're not just clapping after everything I do anymore. What's going <laughs> <Yeah>. on? <laughs> What's wrong with me? <laughs> That's so great. It, it goes on, on from there, but, but certainly, you know, I couldn't have, you know, asked for a better situation in terms of, of learning, you know, hardcore bluegrass musician, uh, bluegrass music with, with mom and dad and, and David and, and Dalton, you know, and, and Lynn and Marshall and, and the, the, the Winchester community there. What other, um, obviously, you know, the Monroe influences and, and David's influencing on your playing is, is really good, but were there any other guys that you were kind of really, cause you, you were even like a punk drummer at one point. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because like, uh, uh, and, and I think about this, and it's just kind of kind of part part of how things evolve and, and, and the story goes. But I had I had a really amazing connection, like a uh, kinetic connection with the mandolin, uh, my whole life uh, uh, until you know I was about you know fifteen, sixteen, sixteen years old, and then I got into drums. And so I, I, I really went after it. But while I was so focused on that, my, my kinetic connection with the mandolin. Um, I suppose evolved or or suffered a little bit. I always felt like I had a perfect touch on the mandolin uh, up until that point, and then after that, when to playing the drums for for a couple of years, when I came back to it, it wasn't the same. Um, and and so you know, I, I it was an, an an interesting kind of like little little break there with, with the with the with the progression because up until then, I felt like you know, oh gosh, I still listen to the you know tapes of of the family band Red and Murphy and their excellent children, which my mom named after uh, kind of the, the Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. <laughs> That's <laughs> cool. Just all that to say that uh, my 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 rhythm, my my natural rhythm and con- connection with the mandolin when I was like. My chop now is not any better than it was to my to my liking than when I was twelve years old, thirteen years old. And in some ways, I liked the, where I would put the chop, you know, better back then, but just because it was so natural. But having that two year break um, where I was really focused on on the drums, really, uh, you know, kind of did an interesting thing with my mandolin playing. So when I came back to it, I didn't have this like perfect touch with it like I did before. Um, but you know, I had some, you know, other skills that, that had been, um, developing, but yeah, I was really into, uh, into the, the hardcore, um, uh, r- aggressive music and, the, and the, so many like uh, parallels between, um, uh, you know, Monroe style 
uh, mandolin and, and his aggressive nature and, and, and the blues and the, the upward tempos and all that kind of stuff and you know the speed metal a lot of resonance and, and, and parallel there and and, and one, of my, one of our favorite bands in, in the punk rock days was no effects and they have this beat that goes like this that's the, like one of their their primary rhythms and and what a revelation it was for me at one time when i realized that munro had been playing that same lick with mule skinner it's the same lick you know and he was playing that on the guitar you know acoustically um but then it, it's it's still a fresh rhythm you know, 50 years later. And so all that stuff, you know, uh, kind of sw- swirls together. And, and I don't really favor uh, loud music so much anymore. I've never really liked loud music. I was always putting like, you know, earplugs in or you know, ear protectors when I was playing the drums and all that kind of stuff. But but you, you can get all those kind of energies and tones uh, in a large way with the good hardcore bluegrass music. What was it about Monroe that put you in the deep dive of like, like, expert Monroe playing and instructing? I appreciate that, that question. So, um, so Red, he's my, my guru. I mean, he's, he's my dad and he's just, just so awesome. And he's, he is the most powerful mandolin player in terms of raw power I have ever heard. Um, he's like, you know, David would, would describe him sometimes as like Monroe on crack. <laughs> um, and his mandolin, Randy Wood number one, was like Bill's mandolin on steroids. Wow. And so you got you got Munro on crack playing Bill's mandolin on steroids, <laughs> and, and you've got and you've got Red. He literally played harder than anyone I've ever heard, um, and he's just like you know he is just the absolute king of of aggressive mandolin when it comes to uh, just raw power. And, uh, and, and so like, you know, when I started listening to Bill and like the master of bluegrass album, when I was maybe 13, 14 years old, I was like, you know, this is good. Like, I like the slides. I like, I like the tones and stuff, but I still favored my dad's like, you know, attack and the power and the volume. Um, so, you know, the sound and this, this powerful kind of feeling was always, you know, in, in my mind. And, and that was one of the things that, that I noticed when, um, so David McLaughlin had a, a duo, a guitar duo with Josh Crow from uh, Mackey Valley, Crow and McLaughlin. It's still to this day my favorite guitar album. And uh, they were playing the, the Opry, uh, de- debuting at the Opry in 94, I guess. And probably a lot of people have heard me tell this story, but I'll, I'll tell it again here because some folks haven't. Uh, we would go over to the Spigma convention in Nashville, and Mom and Dad would, would uh, sell their Murphy Method videos and do networking and all that kind of stuff. And David was playing the Opry that night with Josh Coe, and he asked me if I wanted to go. And he probably asked my, my, my sister Casey if she wanted to go too, but she wasn't feeling well. And so they, uh, we went over to the Opry and uh, and they, they played their set. It was amazing. I, I got to be backstage and felt very cool and all that kind of stuff. I was like maybe thirteen or fourteen years old. Watched Monroe do his set and uh, and he came came back and, and and I was you know I walked up to him and I said you know Mr. Monroe you know my my sister's sick she couldn't come here would you would you sign this 
would you sign an autograph for? You know, I had a little Grand Ole Opry napkin and he just didn't say anything. He just handed me his mandolin, flipped it over and signed the autograph on the napkin on the back of the mandolin. <laughs> and like, Thank you, Mr. Monroe. And, uh, and I don't think he said anything and he just kind of, kind of walked off and, and I had already met him, uh, you know, a few years earlier in Arlington when, when they played the, uh, the WAMU thing. And my dad had been friends with Bill from the early days because, uh, he was friends with, with Kenny Baker. They were picking buddies and, and he had gotten to, to play with, with, uh, Bill one time. It's a funny story. I can't remember if it was, it was probably in Georgia somewhere. And, uh, and, and Kenny and, and Red were playing, and, uh, and and Bill came over there, and, and he played Dusty Miller. And see, uh, so Red is the greatest uh, harmony Monroe style player of of all. He he like, and that's a subjective you know statement, but you know, sure. in terms of like <laughs> being being able to play Monroe style harmony is very very rare. Like there are very few people that can do it. Compton can do it. Um, Red is extremely quick and pro- and prolific with it, and so what what does Red do as they launch into to Dusty Miller? He plays the harmony to Bill Monroe. Oh and the, wow! And, and Bill Monroe, I'm just guessing, had probably never heard anybody play the harmony to him on Dusty Miller. Probably, if he had, it probably wasn't you know was anything like what Red was doing, and so I'm sure that was probably extremely impressive to Monroe. And plus, you know, Red is a uh, he's he's six and a half feet tall. He has bright red hair. He's a very, very <laughs> beautiful fellow. And, uh, and so the next week, uh, and, and I think uh, before before Bill or after Bill left, Kenny was like, "The old man's in good mood today," or something like that. <laughs> and, then, and then, like the next week, uh, they're at another festival, and and I guess Bill saw Red, and he's and he you know from from a little bit of a distance uh, called out to him. He said, "You're a mandolin picker," you know, which is you know in, in some ways about the biggest compliment you're going to get from from Bill Monroe, and. Uh, and so uh, I guess Red went over to him and, and reached out his hand, you know, as you would do to, to shake someone's hand. He said, my name's Red Henry. And he, he said that, that Bill just classically, like, went profile, like, turned his head to the side and said, name's Monroe. <laughs> and would not shake his hand. <laughs> oh, but that's just classic. Oh, so great. You know, uh, they had had this relationship from, from the seventies. So when uh, Bill came to WA and I guess maybe maybe around eighty eight or eighty nine, something like that, in Arlington, um, Bill had gotten done doing a set. My dad took me to the dressing room, which was like you know a very small dressing room with fluorescent lights, and it was just a little bit kind of a lonesome place. And, and Monroe was back there alone, eating like an iceberg salad. <laughs> it was just like <laughs> a lonesome scene, and I was like, oh man. And, and so Red goes in there, and he very very you know I just, I just love him so much. He's like you know. Mr. Monroe, this is my son, Christopher. He's also a mandolin picker. I was like, I kind of felt like a little bit embarrassed because, you know, here's like my dad and like, you know, Monroe. I was like, they're, they're mandolin pickers. I had, I knew a few chords and stuff, but it was just sweet of my dad to and, and say that. And, and, uh, and I, he signed my program. And so I, I had met him that, that one time. But, um, so back to the Opry, uh, you know, at the end of the night, um, David was, you know, we were about to leave and, and David was like, do you want to, uh, play bill's mandolin <laughs> this is just kind of like one of the things that, that that david does you know he's magical and uh and and i was like yeah and so we go back to to bill's dressing room and and, and walk in and bill has his coat on and he's got a mandolin in his hand and, and a couple of his friends they're just literally about to walk like maybe they were like standing up to like walk out of the door and uh, and David said, uh, "This is this is Chris Henry. This is Red Murphy's son. Uh, he wants to play your mandolin." <laughs> and, and he didn't say anything. He just hands me the mandolin and in the case, and you know, I get it out and I you know, strum a little bit. And the first thing I notice it is is that it is not as loud as Randy Wood Number One, my dad's main mandolin. So just a little bit backstory on Randy Wood Number One. 
uh, somehow in, in 1967 or so, Randy Wood decides that he's going to build, uh, you know, what my dad you know, says is the greatest mandolin of all time. And of course, that's a sub- subjective, uh, you know, statement. But but in some ways, it, it's it's true, uh, just you know, based on certain qualities. Um, and and so Randy uh, let Bill play it, and Bill immediately wanted it, saying that it was the most like his mandolin, his main role of any mandolin he had ever played. And he wanted it, but but Randy had already sold it to someone else. And so the only mandolin that Randy had ever commissioned was Randy Wood Number Three, which my my dad eventually got as a as a Christmas present. My um my mom and my grandmother bought that for him uh, from the Bill Monroe Estate uh, sale. It was mislabeled as a Gibson, um, but anyway. So so Randy uh, uh, Bill wanted that Randy Wood mandolin, and my dad ended up with it. And so it's it's a lot like Bill's mandolin, but it's a lot louder. And and a more more projection, especially now that, that Red has one of his uh, amazing maple solid one piece maple bridges on there, which he um, uh, designed, and then, and then David helped him perfect. And so the first thing I noticed about playing Bill's mandolin was that it was not very it was not allowed as Red's mandolin, but it had all the tone, you know. And and my even my thirteen fourteen year year old ears could tell that it had you know the bluegrass tone. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I strummed a little bit of the, you know, maybe the Dusty Miller on that. And, and then I just went right into Rawhide because I had been setting the original recording, you know, which is about like, uh, I think it might've been almost 50 years to the day of since Monroe had recorded it. And as soon as I went into it, started playing it, Bill immediately sprang into action and became very animated and started dancing around the dressing room. He's dancing around the dressing room. He dances over to me. He takes his hat off his head, puts it on my head, continues to dan- dance around the room. And like, you know, we, we, we probably had a smile on my face. I was probably trying try to concentrate all, all, on the two. And, and I was comfortable playing playing the raw high, you know, pretty close to Bill because I've been playing it in, in the family band. And it's just like, oh my gosh, is this really happening? This is really happening. Just try to do try to do the best you can and you know, try to end it, you know, in a good way. So, you know, <laughs> I, I ended it and, uh, and it was just wonderful. And, and uh, you know, I, I put the mail back in the case. I, I give Bill back his hat, and uh, and give him you know back, back the case, I suppose. And, and then he and he comes he comes over to me and looks me right in the eyes and says, "Boy, if you ever need anything, you come and let me know." Oh wow! And that was the last time I ever saw him in, oh. in the physical. Holy cow! That's amazing! What a killer story, man. It was it was a, a dream come true, an unimaginable dream come true that really um, galvanized my my heart and my spirit towards uh, towards Bill as a um, you know as you know this is this might sound strange to some people but as a spiritual leader he he led my heart and my spirit towards uh, the the truth within his music and, and within you know music that is connected to the land and true country music true to earth music. And of, and of course, you know, not many, not many people realize that that his first wife uh, was um, Carolyn was of, of Native American uh, descent, and so you know, you look at James; he's got that that coal black hair, and that's because his mother um, was had had the Native blood. And of course, Bill, you know, he he knew about the ancient tones; he could hear them, and, and some of his, his later unrecorded material, like Pocahontas. And Trail of Tears, you know, really reflects the ancient tones. You know, uh, um, John Henry, Southern Flavor. These are big shamanic melodies that, that Monroe was a custodian of.
Yeah, well, let's talk a little bit about, so you have a, a website that's, I, I hope I'm saying this right, is it noyamountainmusic.com? Yeah. Yes, sir. Noya Mountain Music. Yeah. So you've got this website and you have a, a few different things. You've got the Monroe style improvisation. You've got yes. some some lessons you do there. And then you have these Bill Monroe video lessons, which are available. You can buy them separately. And then you can also buy the like all of them at one price as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, you can you can get them individually. You can get them as a package. You can download them. You can stream them. I also offer them on flash drives. And and this year, you know, with with COVID and everything, people being home a lot, um, you know, I took a lead from Andrew Collins up in uh, up in Canada, who's been putting on really cool mandolin, online mandolin Zoom workshops. And so I said, "Well, do uh, let's do a mandolin work- workshop, you know, Munner style improvising." And because I had uh, I'd done you know so much work doing the, the the note for note studies, which are you know about as close as as, as I could for sure. I'm usually getting uh, you know w- within ninety five percent of what Bill's doing. A lot of times you can't get everything because it's so esoteric. It's kind of one of the, the beautiful parts about it, you know, because he's an impressionistic uh, picker, and and the tones blend like you know a, a Van Gogh painting rather than like you know a, a, a realistic painter like you know a Rembrandt or something like that. Um, so. Uh, I did that last year and, I, and it would take me like a month to learn some of the really hard stuff, you know, note for note. And it was just exhausting. And, and so I, I was thinking, oh, it's going to be, it'd be nice to not have to do that you know, this year. <laughs> and, and so it just kind of naturally evolved. And of course, you know, I asked David and he graciously said that, that he would do it. And so it just started off uh, like that with, with 10 folks. And then it just kept going because there was such enthusiasm enthusiasm for it and and so eventually it, it um kind of ended up being a system uh where i'll, I'll send out you know, a listening video at the beginning of the week and then a teaching video in, improvising all taught by ear and then a, a demo and practice video in which you know i'll, I'll demo the the arrangements and, and the, the lessons um uh, you know three or four different ways at at three or four different tempos with a nice practice track with midi bass and like you know be playing the d18 uh, so students can can hear you know the, the ideas and then you know hopefully engage with their own creativity and synthesize their own um concepts about how they want to arrange the the, the breaks and, and and practice them and then we go into the workshop you know we've been doing it um this is week 26, uh, almost every single Friday. I think we've missed a couple, uh, but uh, very, very consistently. Uh, and so we get in there and then, you know, I'll teach for a while and, and David will, 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 will talk and teach and, and we'll discuss. And then we have some special guests. We've had, uh, my dad's been a special guest, Ronnie McCurry, Peter Rowan, Mike Compton, Lauren Price this, this last week. And, it's been super fun, and so you know it's two hours long, so everybody gets to get a, get a chance to pick and ask questions and and all that kind of stuff. And and people are learning a, a lot. I've never seen people make as much progress as I have, you know, in, in this group. And so it's just amazing. Um, the teaching uh, is is working, and as far as I know, it's it's the it's the only um, uh, you know you know Monroe style improvising. Um, course that and so there the, and so the 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 Monroe style improvising course is built from the materials that we that, that were used for the workshop and this confuses some people so there's two different things there's the Monroe style improvising workshop which happens every Friday and uh, and it's it's 50 bucks a session uh, and it comes with you know three or four videos and and the two hour zoom uh, workshop experience with David and myself sometimes special guests and then you get a recording of that for any, anybody that's in the workshop and then there's the standalone course which is is built off of the study materials um, for the course and so there's three or four uh, videos a week um, special guests added in there it's mostly me teaching 
And, uh, and so the, the, the last one that just came out, uh, which is Monroe style improvising two diving deeper. Um, it's, it's all, but both courses are, are 12 weeks long. Um, it comes with about 40, 40 videos. And, uh, and so folks can get that to either download or stream. And then it's also available on flash drive. So you can get all this stuff that you don't have to have to download it. And it's just been fantastic. And, and, and hopefully we'll be able to, to keep it going. What's, What's the number one mistake you think people make when trying to play Monroe style mandolin? Okay. Um, the number one uh, mistake is not slowing down the original recordings and listening to what Bill is doing on the, the nuclear level. <laughs> right, right. Um, so people um, and, and Compton had a wonderful analogy, uh, which is which is talked about sometimes when the, when Columbus was coming over um, with the big ships, when they were getting close to the shore, um, the shaman, the medicine people of of the native um, cultures, they could see something was happening. They couldn't tell what it was. They just saw kind of a blur, like an apparition out on the horizon. And they told the people, hey, there's something out there. I can't tell what it is, but there is something out there. And then and the people were like, I don't see anything. And then and the ships got closer. And all of a sudden, you know, the shaman started to be able to perceive there was a ship there. But because that was not in their cosmology, they had never seen a ship before. Their brains could not recognize it, even though it was right in front of their faces. You know, and at that point, the other folks could start to see a blur. They're like, "Okay, something's there, but I don't see what you're seeing." And so the you know the spiritual leaders, the, the shaman, they could perceive you know uh, the ship, but, but other people could just see a blur. And so Compton's saying that this is you know something. I think it's a beautiful you know analogy for for Monroe style is that um, we just you know we can't understand what's going on, and so our brain just kind of fills in the gaps with stuff we're already familiar with. That makes total sense. It's like yeah. a like a like a mental illusion. Exactly. It's a, it's a practice of, of perception. Um, so if you go down there and, and, and slow it down, and you spend a lot of time, the music will meet you halfway, and then you can start to hear what's really going on. And it's mind blowing because it's so sophisticated. You know, a, a lot of times, you know. I'm not sure if Bill knew maybe exactly everything he was doing or, or where it was coming from, except to the to, to the to the thought that he would say, "The good Lord put that right there in my hands." <laughs> nice, you know. So he knew he was receiving this download from from a higher place, you know. Um, but but maybe not always conscious or, or or not always able to to replicate or duplicate exactly what he had done before. Not that he always kind of you know wanted to do that. Um, so to me, the, the number one mistake people make is not putting in the immense amount of time it takes to develop the personal relationship with you know Bill's spirit in that regard to be able to it's like security there's a built-in security because there's so much power in Bill's music there's there's never been a more powerful musician than Bill Monroe um and and so people can't expect to just like boom like download like all that power you know relatively quickly a lot of people you know have have a few little licks that are easy to hear and, and easy to play and then they throw them throw them in as you know kind of the the Monroe style flavor um but really it's a super super deep uh lifetime study that requires a lot of time commitment and energy yeah and and on these lessons you break it down um, you know, on this, like, I'm just looking at the Bill Monroe lessons for say on your, on your, um, thing. And I watched a bit of the Dusty Miller one today and yeah, cool. you do a great job of, of, 
I mean, you're like, here it is at speed. Now we'll slow it down a bit. Now we'll slow it down a little bit more. And then getting, getting the phrasing and get it, you know, it like, again, there's no music to look at. It's all, it's really your ears and kind of watching your, you know, your hands. And I think for me who, you know, started out as a tab player and then not realizing like, why can't I remember any of these tunes I've learned? And then I realized, well, it's because I didn't learn them by ear and really learn them. Yeah, in the sense, you know what I mean? I just read them off of a piece of paper Absolutely. and, you know, translated it to my hands and then forgot the melody. <laughs> it's, a, it's a big jump to make going from, uh, you know, having the having the visual cue to just using your ears. Uh, for me, it, it's always been been uh, maybe more easy because that's that's the way I learned. But I was able to learn how to teach this way from my mom, who, in my opinion, is is the best you know by ear teacher for for bluegrass. Um, you know, especially of course banjo, but you know for uh, beginning uh, other instruments. So, so I just took her approach, and then you know, added added a few more of my own. Um, uh, ideas that I've synthesized from other places that I've learned. For instance, you know, I'll often, uh, you know, one e and a two e and a three e and a four e and a one e and a two e and a three e and a four e and a one e and a two e and a three e and a four e and a one e and a two e and a three e and a four. So I'll use the like sixteenth notes, like you could, you know. So I've, I've kind of added that. I do a lot of humming along and, and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, so so when you're learning by ear, you're learning it by heart, and, and it stays with you. But yeah, that Dusty Miller uh, 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 video, I put that on YouTube for uh, for everyone to check out the, the the way the teaching works. So anybody can just go on to YouTube and and uh, and, and search Chris Henry uh, Dusty Miller lesson, and you can check out how the by ear uh, teaching works. And thank you for uh, you know being such a, an amazing host and and being on the ball with all that, um, being prepared and, and knowing you know exactly like what, what to talk about. Oh, thanks, you know, man. <laughs> no problem. This, this stuff that, um, I'm trying to help people with. Yeah, thank you. You can see in yours the true love of the music in, in, the, in, in the playing, which I think that says a lot when you're trying to learn something, because, you know, I think we've all had music teachers. Well, maybe not you, because you were born with two great ones. But, you know, I think a lot of people listening to this podcast definitely have taken music lessons with less than inspiring people in person. You know, you go to a local music store and the only mandolin teacher is a guitar teacher. And yeah. he's only teaching mandolin to make, you know, 25 bucks a half hour. <laughs> Yeah, completely. That can be really uh, frustrating uh, for students, and, and I think it turns a, a lot of people off. And 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 the thing that I, I just want to share is the joy, because you know, it's to me, it's a it, it goes back to you know a spiritual thing. It's it's it can be a communion thing that that you can do with yourself by yourself and and, and generate and create joy and bliss from from with the music. And and to me, to be able to share that is just like is my number one goal. So um, let's talk just real quick too. I want to. You talked about the Opry. What was it like to play like this legendary place where you've you know you just had experiences that you know like the Monroe one. <laughs> It was it was an absolute dream come true, and so so Nashville. Um, just to get uh, you know a, a little bit more into the you know my philosophy about 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 the way I look at things. Nashville is is overseen by Athena. She lives in in the in the Parthenon, you know, her her largest indoor statue in the world. And so Athena is a goddess of wisdom. And so in Nashville, you, you can go to Nashville and you're and and she will teach you 
um, uh, you know, through, through the Holy Spirit, you know, and, and so your dreams can come true, your nightmares can come true, but either way, you're going to have a very educational experience. And, and the Opry, to me, uh, from, from the time that you open the door and you're backstage and it's like, all, it's like you're all your heroes and they're just all being nice together and they'll talk to you and it's super family. Like, you know, it, it's, it's, it's like a dream. It's like, is this really happening? And then you go out and, and you play and then it's the Grand Ole Opry and there's all these people that are, that are clapping for you. Uh, and it's just all super dreamy. And so, you know, I mean, there were times when I was like, you know, you know, broke and, and living out, just about living out of my car, you know, due to my own, you know, karma and, and bad decisions with business and all that kind of stuff. And to all the folks out there, you know, who were, you know, thinking about getting into, into the, into the music business, just remember that you got to spend, you know, half your time on your business and, and don't expect to just spend your time on your music and, and for it to work because you can have the, you know, and, and I don't know if this is true or not, but because the, the, there's two different philosophies on it. There, there's the mouse, there's the better mousetrap theory which is that if you really invent a better mousetrap, the world will, will carve a path to your door. But then there's also the other, you know, marketing aspect. It's like, you know, okay, the Beatles, you know, could have still been the Beatles, but if they weren't marketed properly, they, they never would have, you know, had the success that they did. Oh, absolutely. But, but um, you know, the Grand Ole Opry, you know, to, to me, when I played it just, just the one time was absolute uh, dream come true. And then the other time I was there just backstage, it was, it was just absolute dream come true you know the the the, the holy spirit or, or the universe how, however you know some somebody can look at it can really when, when something good is supposed to happen in your life you know it's it's just going to happen and, and sometimes you can't force it but um then then if it does ha- happen you know it'll it can just you know ch- change your life life totally for the better and um and really galvanize your spirit towards the resonance uh in the path and, and your in your future and really help you get through the the more difficult challenging times now, do you have um were you still playing you moved to charlotte are you still doing like live dates obviously this year doesn't really count <laughs> because nobody's playing any live dates anymore but were you still traveling and playing music as well as doing the teaching no sir i played my last gig with my dad that was the folk festival down in uh at will will fest in uh in, in florida that was in march and and since then i have not played one gig i was supposed to do go to uh nashville to do some recording with, with peter Who's who's slated to to make an amazing new album when, when the time is right with like super cool like collaborations, um, uh, but um, but that's all on, on hold and sure. you know uh, indefinitely. So I've not played one gig, but I've been really grateful that the that the online teaching thing has uh, has uh, has done done well. And then uh, I just haven't played. You know, I think I, I went up. And, and saw my, my folks a couple of different times. We did some social distance picking and, and David came over and, and, and Marshall came over. My buddy Chris Lovelace came over and we did some some picking in the yard. Uh, but but besides that, which was really great for my spirit, I just love that so much. Oh um, man, I bet. That's been pretty much it. But that was, that was uh, you know, enough to really, you know, to get me through and, and looking forward to the next time. Yeah, so you're still doing, um, one, when things get back to normal, still playing with Peter? Yeah, yeah. Um, usually in, in his in his bluegrass band, uh, at least uh, for for um, um, a, a lot of the a lot of the festivals. And you know, but Peter and I we we stay in touch a lot. He really helps me. He's uh, he's like uh, he's just turned into an amazing uh, spiritual leader in a very personal way for me with with Buddhism. You know, he's uh, we talked about being a whole other podcast, but he's he's the the great uh, light light beacon of light shining a, a light on the synthesis of, of bluegrass and folk music and and Buddhist philosophy. And his album Dharma Blues can really offer a lot um, for someone to listen to in that regard. He's got one really amazing song called uh, Across the Rolling Hills. Across the rolling hills I come right 
riding Across the rolling hills I come riding Across the rolling hills I ramble at my will Across the rolling hills I come riding With my banner in the Is, um, which is comes out of his his Buddhist practice. It's a kind of like a, a hymn to Padmasambhava, and uh, and so he's really been helping me understand the Dharma uh, a lot. And I just have so much uh, gratitude and, and appreciation for for Peter, you know, coming into into my life. And, and it's not it's not that we haven't had our, our challenges. You know, we're we're a lot a lot alike, and we we bumped heads and all that kind of stuff. But we always make it through. And his heart is just so so big. And I just, I'm so grateful for him. So much love for Peter. It's amazing, man. So just, I got time for two more questions here for you. And I appreciate you taking the time on a Saturday afternoon to do this, by the way. It's really, really much appreciated. Love the series. Thanks, man. So one of the questions I I, I like to ask for for people is, uh, if you had 10 minutes a day to recommend something for someone to work on, what is something that you would say, hey, if you got 10 minutes only each day this week, work on this? Great question. To me, the big panacea is the folded scale. It's the one that goes da 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 Okay, he's obviously uh, perhaps the most ad- advanced technician in terms of like being able to play fluidly, cleanly of, of anybody. How does how does he do that? And so you know, and, and one of his early instructional things it's, it's, it's the folded scale. And so as soon as I started doing that, practice it religiously for about six months every day. Every time I pick up the metal, just about. And then at the end of that, when I got it up to to one eighty, you know, heading towards two hundred pretty much all of my technical problems were solved because it's you're constantly practicing crossing over to a string above the string you're on with an upstroke to me, which is the hardest thing to do on a mandolin. And so the folded scale and GG sharp and, and A is a big panacea. So, so you spend your five minutes doing that and your other five minutes picking out a tune by ear, slowing it down, amazing slow downer, or, you know, set your, your record player on, on half speed. You know, if you like Munner style, then, then pick out the Munner style. You know, if, if that's maybe too, too difficult, uh, you know, then, then you, you use some, uh, some easier because uh, th- th- those are, those are two things, you know, uh, then, uh, if you're, if you're going to split that that time into three, you know, three and a half minutes on the folded scale, three and a half minutes picking out something by by ear. Hopefully, you know, spend spend more like an hour, but then use the last third, you know, your last three and a half minutes to uh, to to pick out something by ear that you already know. See, we already everyone has a built-in repertoire. Everybody, almost everybody knows you are my sunshine. Pick it out in G. Pick it out in D. Pick it out in A. Pick it out in 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 in, in D. And in, 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 in weird keys, whatever. She'll be coming around the mountain. That's a great. That can be a great mountain. Then 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 then
my mama be so proud of me. These little camp songs or lullaby songs, all that kind of stuff. So those are my, my three big recommendations. Folded scale, picking stuff out from recordings by ear, and then picking stuff out that you already know by ear. Perfect, man. And, and you had a good point. Like, hopefully it'll turn into an hour. That's the whole trick behind this 10 minutes a day thing, man. Is, Absolutely. You know, you, you sit down and just say 10 minutes is so easy to say you're going to do as opposed to right. I'm going to sit down for an hour because you can, you can put that off yes, for sir. days. <laughs> Approachable, 10 minutes. Everybody can do 10 minutes. Absolutely. And if you really do it and focus on something, you will get better. You will that's see right. progress. You know, that's it. So, and then my final question, you're not a drinker. So my final question for you is, what is your favorite Monroe song to play? Well, you know, I, I, I am a, I, I am a drinker and, and uh, I, I, I do get uh, drunk with with a with a different uh beverage in my cup which my 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 beverage of cup and, and the choice when it comes to that kind of idea is ayahuasca oh wow really oh that's yes. a whole that's a whole nother that's a whole nother episode right there man <laughs> indeed indeed my wife and i study uh per, per, traditional peruvian plant medicine and and uh, so I, i've been down, down there um, six or six or seven times, uh, and, and I'll do the I'll do isolation diets, and I'll drink ayahuasca and and then what they call the the, the mariado, that means drunk with the medicine. So that is my um, that is my uh, that, that's my choice for uh, on, on that line of things. But favorite Munro tune. Um, so yeah, let, let me think about that j- just for, just for a second. You yeah, know? of course. I, I didn't uh, think it would be an easy one. <laughs> uh, right. Right, you know, yeah, you know, when, when it comes to what made me love it the most, it's rawhide. It's mm-hmm. rawhide forever. You know, the, the high break on rawhide made me want to play the mandolin very much, and so, so that's probably the most uh, significant and, and meaningful one to me. One that's been really on my radar just just quite recently is, is Pocahontas. Um, which is a really rare tune for a lot of folks. I'm not sure you have for- formally recorded it, but you can. Uh, the folks in the, in the audience who are listening can go to YouTube and just uh, search out uh, Pocahontas Bill Monroe, and and there's a live recording that um, that will come up, and also uh, the five minute preview for uh, for my uh, my by ear lesson, uh, which you can hear me playing uh, along with Bill Monroe as close as I can. And it's an amazing four part tune in A minor. Sweet. Yeah. And I was just going to say, you have the lesson for that on the website as well. So people hear it and they're like, I got to learn this tune. The best way they can do it is go over to your website and, and pick that up. I appreciate that that a whole lot. You know, a lot, a lot of folks will be able to just watch the five minute, the, the five minute preview uh, or the, the lesson arrangement preview where I play it, you know, uh, up to speed with the record, slow down the speed with the record, slow it down again with the record. Some folks will be able to be you know, quick on the draw with the ear and to be able to get it from just watching me play and, and hearing it. And then for the folks that, that maybe aren't as experienced, uh, then, I, then I break it down note for note and you can get all those lessons at noyamountainmusic.com. Awesome. And I'll have a link to that on the website when this goes out as well. So anybody can, if you if you don't remember that, go to mandolinsandbeer.com and you can click the link. It'll take you right to it. Christopher, this has been a good time, man. Thank you so much for doing this. 
Oh, it's been a fantastic conversation. I appreciate you, you uh, inviting me so much and, and look forward to, to listen to, to more of, uh, of your work. And, uh, and thanks for everybody for listening. Thanks a lot. You want, you want to have that timing in your head, you see, and know exactly what you're going to play.